If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We will be in Philippians. And while you're turning to Philippians chapter 4, I will say, I'll just add my thoughts to what Nadine shared this morning as far as compassion. Um, compassion, this, this program has been such a blessing to my family. Um, we, we've sponsored a couple of kids for, for a few years. And um, just the fact that the whole family is involved, like the whole family's praying for Luciana and Wilbur, uh, asking God to continue to work in their lives. And it's been a, a tremendous blessing because the family is together thinking about how we can serve, um, how, how we can help other people outside of our context and to be generous and all of those things. So I want to encourage you, if, if, if you can do this, I, I think you will be blessed by it. If you, will, uh, if, if you, if you can swing it with your family to, to give generously to something like this, it will be good. For, for you, for your children, and obviously for the child that you will sponsor. It will be a, a huge blessing. And we're called to live generously, right? As believers, we are called to live generously. God does not merely bless us the way that he blesses us so that we can be comfortable. Uh, he blesses us so that we might be a blessing. And, and one, of that, one of the ways that we should be a blessing is a blessing to the nations. And this is one way that we can do that. So I'm glad this table will be out there. I, I don't know how many children are, are there, uh, how many packets. We have 10. Um, I, I would love it if, if, if we would see many of those children adopted. Those are real kids that will really be blessed. So that's my encouragement that I want to encourage you with um, now. All right, so our text today is Philippians chapter 4. We're at a series right now. This is, we're about to start Ecclesiastes, Lord willing, next week. Um, but, but today we are here in Philippians. Um, and it's kind of geared towards the reality that the students are leaving today. And, uh, and things are changing. We're kind of entering into that summer season. So Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9 says this. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray again. Father, I, we pray together. We, we continue to pray for the students who are going off into different places, into their home contexts. Um, some who are graduating and not coming back. Lord, we, or some who are transferring and leaving for other things. Lord, we're, we pray for them. We pray that you would use their lives this summer in a great way to make an impact for your name and to glorify your name and and to grow in Christ. We pray as a church for them, asking that you would guide their steps moving forward. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have as a church to minister in this way to college students as they're here. Help us to be faithful to that calling. And as all of us kind of enter into this new season, Lord, help us to, to follow your word, to desire to, to grow in your word. 
And Lord, I, I pray now that as, you, as, as we think about these two verses a little more closely, Lord, I pray that you would make this time matter. Make it matter in our hearts. Make it matter in our lives. This isn't just something we do every Sunday. Just to do it. Oh Lord, move by your spirit in our hearts. Make this time matter for your name's sake and for our good. And Lord, I thank you for the children that I hear in this room. We thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us that way and that you're continuing to bless us in that way. More, more children being born to, to this church family. We are so blessed. And Lord, I, I pray that one of the ways that we express that gratitude is by blessing children in other contexts. And so Lord, I pray that you would make the Compassion Weekend fruitful. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. And by the way, I, I mean that when I say I'm thankful for the children's noise. Uh, if you're a child, you can just let her up. <laughs> but thankful because it means that there's life. Like, that's a, it's a good sound. It's a good sound, and I'm super thankful for that, and I hope that it will never cease. All right, this, this is a final Sunday uh, with most of the college students for the spring semester. We've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, this is finals week. We need to be praying for our college students. They're going to be doing finals, and commencement, I think, is Saturday. And so by next Sunday, most of the college students in this room will be go on their way home. Uh, headed, headed back to their context. Next Sunday, this place will look differently. And it's bittersweet, but it's mostly, it's a bittersweet Sunday, but it's mostly sweet. Uh, bitter kind of because many are graduating, going on to other things, finishing their schooling. They're going to do somewhere else or online. And a lot of these students have played a significant part in the life of this church uh, for the last four years or, or, or so. Uh, and revive in other ways. And we hope and we pray that the Lord, that you have grown in the Lord during your time here. That's our desire for you, that the Lord has worked in your heart and mind through the church, through your brothers and sisters in Christ, through his word. It's sweet because we know that you will go on to other places. And I, I know many of you will return next fall, uh, but many of you will go to other places and you will go not empty-handed, but with the testimony of Christ's work in your life, with the gospel into those places. That's the nature of our church. It's often very exciting. New people come all the time, and it's often very sad. Uh, we say the word goodbye every year. Some Christians don't like the word goodbye. They are careful to say, this is not a goodbye, this is a see you later. You've probably said that or heard people say that. And that's because we don't like the finality of the word goodbye. But if you consider the etymology of the word goodbye, not to be confused with entomology, the etymology of the word goodbye, it seems very fitting to me today on this Sunday. Do you know what the, where the word goodbye comes from, where it originates? How the word came to mean this expression that we say when people are leaving? The word goodbye began life as a sentence, actually, not a word, like a lot of our English words. The sentence was, God be with you, or to be more precise, God be with ye. 
And typical of how phrases morph over the years, especially when they become kind of empty in the way that we use them, and we kind of start supra-segmentally pronouncing them. You know, in the South, they say, uh, G yet, which is like, did you eat yet? But we just mix it all together. G yet? You know, those kind of things. We, we, we just morph things together. Soon that'll be a real word, jeet, <laughs> I think. That's typical of how phrases work. And now we say goodbye, even though we have no thought of God be with you when we say it. Like the word itself isn't intrinsically loaded in our minds with God be with you, but that's where the word comes from. This morning we're saying goodbye and we mean God be with you. We, we mean it in all of its fullness. Or to use the phrase in this passage, the God of peace be with you. We won't merely say that, though, in an empty way. Part of the reason why God be with you became goodbye is because we say things like, we say pat phrases without thinking, right? We don't have meaning behind them. We say them in an empty way. And then it doesn't matter if you can still make out the words, right? If you don't care about the words, you could just say goodbye or even bye, right? We've even got rid of the good part, <laughs> That's why this passage is so good for us this morning. It directs us to a place of substance. This is about the peace of God governing our hearts and minds and the presence of God, the presence of the God of peace in our lives. This is not empty. This is teaching us how we can rest assured in God's presence with us. So it's helpful that we unpack this passage. Whether, whether you're going to be here in Shadron every Sunday this week, I mean this year, this summer, or whether you're headed back home, we want the God of peace to be with us, right? So let's begin thinking about this. And first, maybe we'll start by thinking about the context. Verse 8 begins with the word finally. And that word, the Greek word, could actually be translated as far as the rest is concerned or something like that. That's, that word has that meaning to it. And I think it's intended to tie together this passage with what came right before it. And there are a couple of other tie-ins here too. If you, if you go back up a few verses, you will see the famous passage that we talk about in the context of anxiety, right? So Philippians 4, 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now note what Paul was saying in that passage. He is saying that, in, that instead of worry and anxiety and the, of, about the unknowns and the stress factors in your life, you are called to trust in the Lord, right? You're called to trust in the Lord and pray your needs to him and be, and be thankful in the midst of your needs. And the glorious promise in verse 7 is that the peace of God will supernaturally guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? This is about the heart and the mind. And Paul is assuring us that we can take our needs to God and then we will experience the peace of God. The supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace governs our hearts and our minds against anxiousness. Right? And then, on the heels of that passage, Paul tells us how to use our minds and our bodies in a way that brings assurance and that, 
It brings us assurance that the God of peace is with, it, with us. So pray your needs to God with thanksgiving and you experience the peace of God and think and live in accordance with what is revealed to be true and good and right and in line with what Paul has taught and modeled and you experience the presence of the God of peace. The, the, the peace of God governing your heart and the presence of the God of peace. In these two passages, we go from one to the other. And both of these passages have to do with our minds and our hearts. How we, how we think and how we believe. And in our passage, how we use our bodies. How we practice. This passage is literally, inst- is, is literally instruction on how, we, how to think and live. And what a perfect passage it is to start our summer. How will you use your mind and your body this summer? That's what this is all about. And we can either use our minds and our bodies in a way that gives us assurance that God, the God of peace, is near to us, or we can use those things in such a way that undermines that assurance and makes us feel like God is far away. Verse 8 is about what we think. Verse 9 is about what we do. And I think that's how we'll walk through this passage. So first, our mind. Verse 8 is like a filter, okay? And I, th- I think you know, I think we know how filters work. We all know how filters work. Like, you know that air filter that you never change in your air conditioner? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's supposed to let all the good stuff go through, clean air, and it's supposed to catch all the bad stuff like dust and hair and all that stuff that gets through and stops it. And if you go look at that today, it's pretty nasty probably. It stops all the bad stuff, but it lets all the good stuff through. That's how filters work. And the idea is that you can discard the bad stuff. Here, Paul gives us six filters, six whatevers. And the purpose is to only allow certain things through to our minds and our hearts. And stop everything else. Stop the things that are harmful for your mind so that you can discard them. So let's walk through these six whatevers. The first is whatever is true. That is, the things that accord with reality. And how this world and God and man really are. We should let the filter catch the lies and not think on those things. We must think about what's true. And truth is what sets us free when we know it. So we need to think on what is true. And this is tough because of at least two reasons. Some of the, the, the two reasons are that the world, the flesh and the devil, they're full of lies. That's the first one. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And he lives to mischaracterize everything about God and what is true. And the, the world loves to lie too. I mean, if you think of it, some of the biggest controversies that we face in our day is about what is true and what is false. And many of those controversies are, are couched in lies. Think of the sexual revolution and the lies that are so integral to its success. Issues about gender and marriage. The world does not love truth. I mean, this is not surprising to us. The world does not love truth. We live in an age where truth is viewed subjectively as if it is dependent on what you believe or what you feel. When it should be the other way around, right? What you believe should be dictated by what is true. We live in a day when that idea is rejected. And everyone, everyone seems to play loosey-goosey with the truth. 
It's popular to frame things in such a way so that reality kind of fits your narrative, right? You just kind of twist it, say it in such a way that your narrative works. Media does that. We do that. Paul is teaching us that we cannot buy that. We cannot be those who frame things in a certain way or put a twist on what reality is. We must think on whatever is true. So the first reason is that it's difficult as the, the world, the flesh, and the devil love lies. And the second reason this is difficult is because our own minds tend to dwell on what is not true. Things like worry and jealousy and anger are often rooted in what is not true. But what we assume to be the case or what we worry might be the case, they're, rooted in, they're not rooted in, in what is. They're rooted in what might be. In other words, if I'm worried about tomorrow and a potential outcome that could happen but hasn't happened, I'm not thinking about what's true. I am literally thinking about what is not, at least not yet. Or often when I am angry, I'm not thinking about what is true. I'm thinking about what I think is probably the case or what might be the case, what that person might be thinking. So for those two reasons, it's difficult to filter out the lies and to dwell on the truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil hate truth, and my own mind tends to gravitate towards what is not necessarily true. But Paul is urging us to think on what is true. The second category, the second filter is whatever is honorable. We must filter out whatever is dishonorable and think on the things that are dignified, things that are pleasant, things that are holy, things that have honor. But here again, our minds love to dwell on what is not honorable. If, if I were to drop a name today of someone famous and tell you, like if you didn't know this and I told you that, that he was found out to be involved in some salacious evil, you would likely want to go Google that story and read all about it. Maybe part of that is because you want to know what's true and that's not bad. But I dare say that a bigger part of that is because we love to think about dishonorable things. Scandal is enticing to us. But Paul is urging us as people who want to enjoy the presence of God to gravitate in our minds, not on scandalous things, but on what is honorable. The third filter is whatever is just. That is, whatever is right, whatever is keeping with God's judgment, whatever is what, what's keeping with his righteousness. So, I mean, Christians do not dwell on intrigue or deception or unjust or false accusations. They certainly don't make unjust accusations. Instead, we're called to think on what is just and what is righteous. That's what the mind that is captured by Christ dwells on. And then, next one, whatever is pure. Let me ask you, friends, to ponder this one a moment. And maybe let me allow this text to make you uncomfortable. This isn't me making you uncomfortable. Maybe this is this Bible verse making you uncomfortable. But you can blame me if you want. But this, I think it's the scriptures. What if, what if purity were the criteria you used to decide what movies you'd watch, and what books you would read, what clothes you would wear, and what jokes you will tell, and what company you will keep. How would last week have looked for you if whatever is pure was the filter that you put on your ears and your eyes and your mind 
in your heart? Is it possible that under the banner of Christian freedom, we have lost sense of the priority that the scriptures place on purity? That's convicting, isn't it? It was to me. The fifth filter, fifth whatever, is whatever is lovely or beautiful. While our minds, affected by the fall, gravitate towards what is ugly, like scandal and sin and drama, as Christians, we are to think of lovely things. And God has put so many lovely things around us to think upon. I think we're afraid to fully put on these filters, filters like whatever is pure, because we have been duped into thinking that without things like scandal and intrigue and things that are risque, life would be boring. We'd have nothing pleasing to dwell upon. But there is so much God-given beauty around us. There are lovely things, and we are called to dwell on whatever is lovely. The sixth filter is whatever is commendable. This is what we're called on to dwell, not on things that are right, that are like offensive for real, like really offensive, but on things that demand our commendation. Some of you might know who Jerry Springer was. As I was writing this, I got word that he passed away. Jerry Springer. He was a, he, for why, for don't, don't Google this, uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned his name. Can I take it back? <laughs> For years, he, he had a, a wildly popular show and it was popular because he intentionally put the things that were super uncommendable on display, shameful things on display. And people secretly wanted to see that. That's why people watched his show. They wanted to see what was yucky in us. It was an awful show. It's not worth watching, not even worth taking a glimpse at. I don't think it's around anymore. I bet it's been replaced by something equally awful. I just don't know what, thankfully. The popularity of that show and shows like it just demonstrate that our minds corrupted by sin trend towards things that are offensive and ugly and impure but we are called to think on what is commendable. So those are the six filters, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. And I think the next two phrases are summaries of those two phrases, of, of all of those things. So the end of verse eight says, if there's anything, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And I think the excellence and the worthy of praise, those are things that are true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. Now, let me ask you a question for the sake of reflection before we move on to the next part of this. What is it that governs your mind? What is it that governs the things that you think about? What filter do you use? And this is not only about entertainment or what you watch on Prime or, or Netflix or at the theater or on your Snapchat, but I do think those kind of choices are relevant here to this discussion. Those are good revealers sometimes, some good indicators of the standards we keep when it comes to what we purposely think of on. Is, is purity, truth, loveliness, commendability, is that the standard? 
Or does that whole idea strike you as prudish or puritanical or legalistic? It's not those things. It is what God wants for your mind. God is interested in your mind. He wants, he wants, he is interested in what you think about. Now we're going to circle back here in a moment and offer a few practical suggestions to help you think on these things this summer. But now we should consider verse 9. If verse 8 is about the mind, verse 9 is about the body. What you practice, what you do. Let's read again what Paul wants you to practice. Philippians 4, 9 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is so helpful. This means that we do not make our own way, as it were, in this world. We don't just figure it out. Like whatever feels good or seems good or strikes me as good, that's not my guide. And that's a good thing because that would be a terrible guide. I hope you know that. I hope your sense is not all that good. None of our senses are all that good left to ourselves. Corrupted by sin, our sense leads us to places we don't want to go. This is helpful. We don't make our own way. It's, it's not wise to just try to figure out what works for us and run with it. The you do you thing, it's not helpful. Not helpful. Instead, we practice what we have learned and received and heard and seen in the apostles. In other words, we allow the teachings of Paul and the other apostles to shape our practice, to shape the practice of our Christian lives. This is one massive reason why the Bible is so important to us as Christians. It is why the Bible is so important to us as a church. It's why we preach this way placing ourselves under the authority of God's word and seeking to discern what the Bible teaches us. It is because we want to practice the things that we have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul and the apostles and in Jesus. Now, of course, the truths that Paul taught and practiced were not original to him either. He's telling us to what, 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 what we have received and what we've learned, what we've heard from him, we should practice. But they didn't start with Paul. Paul says that himself. He tells us it doesn't start with him. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul received what he then preached to us, so our ideas about the Christian life, they're not original to us, and they weren't even original to Paul. They come from God. They come from our Creator. And by the way, at the very heart of all Paul taught and modeled was this message that he shares in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he rose again according to the Scriptures. This is the heart of what he received from God, and this is the Gospel Jesus Christ died for our sins. 
He stood in our place. He paid our penalty before God. We are sinners. We have broken God's law. And God loved us and sent his son to take our penalty for us and die as an atoning sacrifice in our place. That's the heart of what Paul has received. Friend, if you are trusting in Jesus today, then Christ has paid your penalty. You bear your sin no more. Isn't that encouraging? You bear your sin no more. If you are in him today, you have new life. If you're trusting in Jesus, if your faith is in him, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is past if your hope is in him. All things are new. The old man, the old man who loved depravity and sin and lies and selfishness and scandal is dead. You are new. Oh, I hope Jesus is your hope this morning. Are you trusting in what he has accomplished for you alone? Is that where your confidence is? May it be so. That precious reality is at the heart of what we have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul. The hope of the life-transforming gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ lived out in our lives. So verse 9 is massive, okay? It's bigger than it first appears. He is teaching us to allow the word of God to be the shaping influence of our life and our practice. Verses 8 and 9 teach us to be intentional about setting the word of God before us to shape all that we think and do. That's big. And he then gives us this precious assurance as we allow the word of God to be the shaping influence, as we allow the word of God to shape what we think and what we do, Paul says the God of peace will be with you. You will enjoy the presence of God, the God who brings peace. Now that cannot mean, of course, that if, we, that if we dot all our I's and we cross all our T's, that if we adopt the highest moral standards, we, by those means, will earn favor with God and, and then he will be with us. Or to put it another way, it cannot mean that the presence of God, the presence of the God of peace in our lives is because of our merit. Don't, don't come away from this with that. And I know that. I know that. It's not my opinion. I know that. You know how I know that? Because right at the heart of what we have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul is the gospel of grace. It is Paul who teaches most clearly that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. God's presence with us is ultimately owing to Christ and his gracious work on the cross. But Paul does promise as we make that teaching and that model our aim that we will enjoy the God of peace. We will enjoy the presence of the God of peace. So let me me do this. Let me, as I kind of try to bring this together, let me make one or two big implications from this passage and then maybe some practical ways that we can obey it And then I'll just leave you with the hope of the presence of the God of peace. So the implication here, and also this implication is the same, similar implication as the implication that you would make from verses four through seven. So let me me start there, back there. And the implication is that I can undermine my sense of enjoyment 
and perhaps even the actual presence of God, of the God of peace in my life. Okay, so verse, verses four through seven teach us that if you want the peace of God to rule your heart and mind, you should pray, you should be thankful, and you should make your requests to God, right? That's what it teaches us, I think, pretty plainly in those verses. The implication then is that if I don't want his peace to supernaturally guard my heart and mind, I should be prayerless. Prayerlessness will mean I will not have peace. Do you, you see that, right, in verses 4 through 7? If you want to feel inner turmoil, if you want to be paralyzed by fear and anxiety and worry and heart chaos, then the way to do that is to be prayerless and be thankless. That's the implication of verses 4 through 7. And something similar goes for our passage today. If I desire to feel far away from God, if I desire to feel distant from the God of peace, if I want to feel spiritually deserted and far from God and alone in this world, then I should not think on these things. And I should not practice these things. Do you follow what I'm saying? People come to me all the time and complain that God feels far away. They're not experiencing or enjoying the presence of God, of peace. He feels distant, silent. Their spiritual lives feel dry. Often it doesn't do a lot of digging to see why. They are not thinking and practicing like this. They fill their minds with what is untrue and impure and unjust and ugly. And they don't take the teachings of the Bible all that seriously. At least as they pertain to the use of their mind and their bodies. And then they wonder why God feels so distant. Do you ever, have you ever been there? You don't earn God's presence. It's all by God's grace. God's presence with you is owing to the grace of God in Christ. Yet we experience and enjoy that presence. And we can often feel that presence as we put right at the center of our hearts and minds and bodies, God's word. Don't you want that? Aren't you tired of living a shallow Christian life? One foot in the church and two feet most of the time in the world, feeling that God is far off. I think this is an important passage, an important remedy to that. Let God's word govern your thinking and shape your practices and you will enjoy the presence of the God of peace. I think that's what Paul is clearly teaching here. Now, practically, how do we do that? Is there anything practical that can help me think on these things and practice these things? Or is this all about, like, discipline? I think there is something that can help us. I, I don't think that these two verses are merely about personal discipline, although that is certainly a factor here. I, I don't think that this only has to do also with your choices of entertainment, obviously. I think it's much bigger. And I think there are some practical things you can, could and should do this summer to obey these verses in those areas, but I think this is bigger. How do I think on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable? And how do I practice what I have received and learned and heard and seen in Paul? One very practical way is to put yourself in a place where you see and hear and can receive the teachings of Paul all the time where you will be encouraged in these things, 
where you will hear the word of God taught and preached. And this is specifically to you if you're traveling to some other place to live this summer. Be a part of a church that preaches and cherishes God's word. That's one way that you can, you, 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 you can have strength to obey this passage. Be around other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who will prod you to think on these things and practice these things. And be that brother or that sister to someone else. Help them to think on these things and practice these things. We cannot do this alone. You cannot do this alone. This is part of what it means to be a church. We encourage one another in these things. And of course, along with that, I do think it would be very practical to evaluate your intake. The things you read and watch and listen and where your mind gravitates. We are free as Christians. I am not a legalist. But under that banner, may we not diminish the scriptures and what they teach to us. And consider the, the people you hang with as peers in light of these verses. Not that we should have no unbelieving friends. We should have unbelieving friends. We should seek to cultivate those kind of relationships to win them to Christ. But if you don't have people in your life who are encouraging you towards the scriptures, you only have those kind of relationships, you will be very vulnerable. So I think we should take these verses and make them matter in our life. Make corrections as, they, as we need to make corrections. I think we should take this to heart. And I think this, not just about you students who are leaving, I think this is about all of us. I think all of us should do that. This is for all of us. Whether you're here all summer or gone, we want to experience and enjoy the presence of the God of peace through Christ. And so let's take this to heart. And so I'm just going to say a word and I'm going to mean it in all of its etymological goodness. Goodbye to you students. May the God of peace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be pleasing to you. We want to experience your peace and not anxiety. We want to trust safely in you, lifting our requests to you, making known the, the needs of our heart and doing so with thanksgiving. We want to see the, the peace of God guarding our hearts in a way that we can't explain through Christ. And we want to experience the presence of the God of peace. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as Christians to follow after this and see the value of this. And not make little what you make much of. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.